Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. I am your host, Mark Tapson. Thanks once again for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. We are just a few days away from November 19th, which is International Men's Day. I'll bet you didn't even know there's such a thing as International Men's Day. It's actually a worldwide holiday that's dedicated to celebrating the positive value that men bring to society. We are all made painfully aware of International Women's Day when it rolls around every March 8th because the media announce it and take advantage of the opportunity to post a multitude of articles celebrating womanhood and sisterhood and getting women all pumped up about how the future is female. Or alternatively, we are treated to articles complaining that women still live under a sort of handmaid's tale patriarchal oppression by which women continue to be victimized and exploited. But there's no such fanfare for International Men's Day, not that I think most men care about it. I'm not really sure why we need an International Men's or Women's Day, but if we're going to have both, it's worth examining how each of them is treated in the culture. Feminists would say that we live in a misogynistic culture, even a rape culture. Although you never hear those feminists complaining about actual rape cultures in which women are treated worse than livestock and genuinely oppressed in the worst possible ways. But the West is all multicultural now, and the multicultural worldview is that all cultures foreign to Western civilization are moral and aesthetic paradises that are equally worthy of celebration except for Western culture, which is, of course, scorned as the source of all historical evil, exploitation, oppression, sexism, the list goes on and on. So true rape cultures are given a pass, but in Western culture, men are smeared as poisonous in their very nature. Their masculinity is denounced as toxic. Real men, our culture keeps insisting, embrace all the characteristics of the stereotype of a woman. They embrace vulnerability, they cry at the drop of a hat, they're self-effacing, they're secure enough in their masculinity to dress in women's clothes or put on makeup. Meanwhile, for decades, women have been told to embrace all the male characteristics that we label toxic. They've been pushed to be aggressive, ruthlessly ambitious and power-hungry, foul-mouthed, promiscuous, slovenly, and so on. Has any of this rejection of true manliness and femininity been good for our culture, good for our relationships, good for our social interactions, good for our workplace environments, good for our sports, good for our children, good for our relationship with God. We all know that it has not been good for any of those things. It's exacerbated the so-called war between the sexes. It's led to the breakdown of the family. It's messed with the heads of young men and women alike and emasculated our culture. And as I've often said, an emasculated civilization is a doomed civilization. And now these assaults on traditional masculinity and femininity have been ratcheted up to the next level, wherein all the women who have embraced feminism and sisterhood are being thrown under the bus by the bullying trans movement, which denies that women even exist, and which has seen men who claim to be women dominate every arena that belongs to women, including women's sports, women's fashion, um, beauty pageants, and so on. The upshot of all this gender theory lunacy is that the cultural Marxist assault on the very definition of the words man and woman has left millions of young men and women conflicted about their own nature 
and what it even means to be a man or a woman. Well, today on the Right Take Podcast, I have a guest who isn't conflicted at all about what it means to be a man. He's even written a book featuring a dozen rules for embodying manliness. If you keep up with my podcasts or my writing, then you know that I talk and write about masculinity a lot because I think reclaiming the right kind of manliness is the key to salvaging our civilization. So stay tuned because my guest and I are going to address this whole topic and I know you're going to hear, want to hear what he has to say. And as we go into this awesome little musical interlude, take a moment to subscribe to The Right Take if you haven't already so you don't miss any of the important conversations we're having here at the intersection of politics and culture. Be right back. My guest today at the intersection of politics and culture is a world champion surfer. I think that's the first time I've had one on. A certified ninja black belt. I'm pretty sure it's the first time I've had one of those on, too. And he's the host of the Bear Wozniak Adventure Radio Program and EWTN's motorcycle-based reality show, The Long Ride Home with Bear Wozniak. He's a Benedictine oblate also, and I'll ask him to explain that in a moment, and the author of a few books, including A Surfer's Guide to the Soul, Deep Adventure, The Way of Heroic Virtue, and the one we're going to talk about today, 12 Rules for Manliness, Where Have All the Cowboys Gone?, Bear Wozniak, welcome to the Right Take Podcast. Hey, aloha, Mark. Good to be with you. Bear, you strike me as the kind of guy who doesn't really feel the need to declare his personal pronouns. Is that fair to say? <laughs> I don't even know what those are, dude. I've heard of them. I think I think my English teacher mentioned them. I don't even know what those are. I think you can assume that's correct. <laughs> there was a time when we didn't even have to be conscious of that sort of thing, but... Uh, Barry, you have a lot going on. Tell us about some of the projects that you lead, like your reality show, for example. Oh, well, we're kind of known for our Long Ride Home immersive reality show. Long Ride Home with Bear Wozniak, a bunch of men. Uh, we ride motorcycles across the United States, and uh, and we're just uh, kind of, I would call it Holy Spirit action plan. We're just riding, and we're seeking to go deeper with God and deeper with each other and, and deeper in the virtues, and then we never know what's going to happen. But our newest season uh, all filmed where we live in Hawaii. Most of it's on the mainland, but the new season, season four, is all 11 episodes in Hawaii. And uh, it's on the EWTN television network, but it's also available on Prime Video. And so uh, we're doing that. We've done that. And now my wife and I, after we're, we're at the EWTN network right now, and then we're going to go down to the Virgin Islands and we have a sailboat called the Spirit of Adventure. We're going to sail for a couple of months and we'll be doing we don't know what we're doing. We're going to be doing some filming, but we're just going to ponder a little bit. And then, but we know God's up to something, you know, the, uh, so we're going to be doing some filming there, but this will be with my wife and I, instead of a bunch of smelly guys, you know, riding motorcycles. You've also got, tell us about Bear's Man Cave, for example, and your deep adventure YouTube channel. All these things sound fascinating. Well, you know, there's that verse, I, I was reading it a couple of days ago that where Paul exhorts uh, saying, act like men. He doesn't say act like a man. He says act like men. And that implies brotherhood. And so the man cave, it's kind of like the cave of Adullam of King David, where all the misfits kind of got together, those that were running from the law and their mother-in-laws and uh, their old money. And uh, they formed each other and God formed them into the mighty men of valor. You really can't grow uh, in, in virtue as a man without uh, good men around you that challenge you and encourage you and, and, uh, 
have fun a little bit with you. And uh, so we, the man cave is basically a non Facebook community of men and we have zoom meetups from time to time. And then there's a, a two and a half year curriculum on manliness that we go through together as men, but men actually go through individually and they can also lead their sons through. So it's uh yeah, cool. Yeah, it's cool. I'm, I'm very curious about bears school of manliness. What is that all about? How does that work? Well, you know, in the old Testament, there was the school of the prophets so what it is, is, is people join, the men join the man cave in the School of Manliness together. And uh, there's actually a mixture of videos and audio and uh, personal assessments and goal setting and uh, 60 second shorts and two minute shorts. There's a variety of multimedia presentation where you go through once a month and you can kind of track your progress through the, through the curriculum. Uh, and so we as men, wherever, if a man joins in the 13th month, then that's where he jo- they join with us, and we go through that together. Uh, and like I said, we have a Zoom meetup once a month. But what I really like about it is men can get their sons their own login credentials. The sons, the younger sons, can't uh, can't be a part of the man cave, but the fathers can lead their sons through the curriculum, and they can track what their sons doing. So it's just like my book, Twelve Rules for Manliness. It's great for men to read together, but it's great for fathers and sons to read it together too. Now. I think it's probably clear to listeners uh, so far that you coming, you're coming at this from a religious angle. Tell us about being a Benedictine oblate for those who don't know what one is. Well, you, the name, you, the, one of your, your thing is with the, the intersection of, of, of culture and now I'm gelling on it. What is your it's intersection of politics and culture? Yeah. I mean, you know, culture that's got the word cult, it's got the word religion right in it. Right. So, uh, so with our, with our, uh, when we look at, at, uh, uh, the Benedictine Oblates, you know, that's that that's that religious part that we all have within us. We have that upward yearning for truth, for justice, for love, for for beauty, for a sense of going home or being at home. Uh, and so being a Benedictine Oblate, that's uh, someone who aspires to live by the rules of St. Benedict, you know, hence the book 12 Rules for Manliness, uh, based some, somewhat on those rules, too. But it's just that this is the way I want to live my life according to the stage of life that I'm living in. And to the best of my ability, I want to live by the rules of St. Benedict, which he wrote 1,500 years ago, uh, um, based on the fact that I'm not, I don't live in a monastery someplace. <laughs> so, yeah, that, it's, so it's a life of prayer. It's a life of detachment from material possessions. It's not that God hasn't prospered me and blessed me, but it's not my goal in life. And uh my goal in life is simply just to love God back. So I spend an hour every day in prayer and meditation and seeking God's word. So that, that's kind of what it's all about. Well, let's talk about your new book. It's called 12 Rules for Manliness. But the subtitle is Where Have All the Cowboys Gone? And that suggests that you're kind of holding up old school traditional icons like um, John Wayne and Roy Rogers, my personal favorite, the Lone Ranger, uh, as models of of manliness and all that resonates with me because I grew up with those cowboys and with superheroes like Superman uh, who modeled for boys and young men, a sort of an ideal of virtuous service. Where have all the cowboys gone? What's gone wrong in our society with manhood? Well, you know, one of the great, one of the most important things we could do in Western civilization is to look back at everything truthfully too. you know, a sense of history is so important, but just to look back to when we were younger, uh, uh, we all aspired to be like cowboys, our generation. Um, the, and the men around me did too. I mean, they were, for the most part, virtuous or strove to be virtuous. At least they knew when they weren't being virtuous. 
that men tend to tend to hold each other to a to that. You know, the very word man in Latin, the word man, the word for man is ver. It's where you get the word virtue. So men are factory loaded to be men of virtue, to be uh, protectors, providers. Uh, and uh, and in, in Hawaii, we have the word imua. It, it means strength, but it means more than that. It means strength moving forward. And when you saw these cowboys, they always seemed to be the, know the right thing to do. It didn't take them long to make a decision about pursuing the true good, which is what Thomas Aquinas called love. And they, they would do that through self-donation, which is what John Paul II called love. So to know the true good, to have that virtue, one of the four classic virtues, justice, self-mastery, fortitude, prudence, to have the, the prudence to know the true good. And then this quick, easy response to that formed by habit uh, of doing of pursuing the true good. You don't have to be clever or conniving. Just this is the way it is. Do the right thing. Do it. Uh, you know, John Paul II also wrote about love and responsibility. So if you if you have if you say you love, but you don't really do anything about it, that's just warm, fuzzy feelings, you know. So love and responsibility go hand in hand as well as truth. So to know the truth so that you can seek the true good and you seek it through laying down your life. That is that is the essence of a cowboy. Yeah. And speaking of cowboys, I don't want to neglect to ask you this. Tell us how you were influenced by the Westerns of novelist Louis L'Amour. For anyone who might not know, Louis L'Amour and Zane Grey are really, they're really the two big iconic 20th century writers of Westerns. Uh, L'Amour wrote about 90 of them, I think. Uh, tell us about his influence on you, Bear. I can tell you he wrote more than that because I got 105 of them, leather-bound edition that I, well, as a young dad, I would get one every month. I think I paid nine ninety nine, and they would come one a month. And, and he wrote a lot more than the ones that I have. But Louis L'Amour, and I got to talk to his wife, Kathleen. I asked her permission to use quotes in the book from him. Uh, but I don't, uh, I mean, I could have without talking to her, but I, I wanted to give her the respect, to him the respect. But he was, uh, <clears throat> actually, you know what, Mark? He was born in North Dakota, just like me, except for I moved, he moved to California and I moved to, to Hawaii. But uh, his books, the men were always uh, uh, pursued virtue. But what's really cool, Mark, really, really cool, I think, especially for this book, is that the women in his books were strong. He made a point to represent that women weren't the type. Before him, there weren't that many that wrote about women in that light. And so, but, uh, you know, I, I took out um, uh, Krishna Koya, the, they called him the Nigerian nightmare. They all pro fullback from uh, the chiefs. I took him out surfing. He was so big and strong that he couldn't paddle. You know, it's too much muscle to lift and paddle. So when we went out surfing, this big, strong man in that situation was vulnerable. So that's what I mean. Uh, a, a strong person can find themselves in a vulnerable position. And the role of that cowboy was to step between that person and danger. And that, I have a friend, Jason Jones, who prays that prayers with his sons every night after after. Uh, they have uh, their the family dinner. The, the boys go into one room with the dad, and the mom into another. Mom with the girls in the other room, and the men pray. Lord, put the Jones boys between the vulnerable and and danger. So yeah. So the, Louis Lamore, you know, I, I encourage men to read his books to their sons. I'm, I want to write a Louis Lamore type Western because although he's not very religious in, in the books, the four cardinal virtues are very evident in his writings, and they're great books. Great books too. Uh, your own book, you write, is not a self-help book. 
you call it a toolbox to help the reader grow in virtue and wisdom. And also the book uh, is intended to call you outward, as you put it, into servant leadership. You've, I think you've touched on this already a little bit, but what, tell us what servant leadership means. Well, you know, I, I, I'm going to kind of say a couple of things. First, first of all, people who are totally focused on develop themse- developing themselves, it really reminds me, I recently read through all of the Dante books, The Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso, you know, it really reminds me of that downward, inward spiral, the trap that people get themselves into. It's very good to look inward, but you have to look outward too. You have to look towards others and towards God. And and so we talk about in the book, Grit and Grace. If all you is about is, and there's so many things like this on YouTube now about get money, get women, get success, get stronger, get fit, uh, challenging men to do that. And there, there is some benefit to that, but... If that's all there is, it's like a, one of the early church, one of the early Greek church fathers wrote about a guy walking down the street, reaching up and grabbing air and swallowing it like as if that was going to fill him with anything more than just more emptiness. So so that feeling of the of the uh, the need, the need to be uh, going deeper with God, if it's just grit, you're going to fall on your own sword. You need the grace of God and grit. Grace alone isn't going to do it, but grit alone isn't going to do it. We need both. And so the way you get avoid that trap of self, self, self is to lay down your life and servant leadership to others. That was the great example of Jesus was uh, he said, man can have no greater love than to lay down his life for his friends. Of course, he did it for his enemies, too. But but uh, it's it's a, it's an act of real manhood to uh, to do that. And it's not all about self. It's about in Hawaii, we have the word Mark Kuliana. It means what your realm of stewardship is, but it's more than that. It's like it, it like if it's your garden, it's not just your garden. It's you. That's the nature of a man to to embrace his, his responsibility as if it's him and to really serve those that God's calling him to serve. Yeah, I love this quote from your book. Deep in his heart, every man senses that call to live the heroic way, to champion a cause greater than himself, unquote. I completely believe that to be true. And you've, you've already spoken a little bit about it. But what is the heroic way exactly? Well, um, you know, I remember when I, I won my world title and I had trained another guy, I had taught another guy how to, and by my, my world title in surfing, by the way, is where I lift a woman when we surf in very extreme lifts. So I met my wife on a tandem surfboard. But I remember when my good friend Chuck, who's a good guy, a nice guy, a good man. I always distinguish between nice guy and good man. And uh, he won a world title. And I, and, and, and I go, that's great, but that doesn't make you a champion. And he's one of my best friends. What makes you a champion is championing a cause. And now, like, now that you've won this world title, what can you do with that world title to, to, uh, to make other people's lives in the world a better place, you know? So, so a champion is someone who champions a cause. And, and, and as a man, when I, when I earned my first Ninja black belt, we always had a motto. And my motto was a prayer from David, lead me to the rock too high to climb and I will climb it. And then another one, by thee I can leap a wall, by thee I can crush a troop, by thee I can bend a bow of bronze. All those things are things that I can't do on my own strength. But if I'm like David, and I'm saying, I'm going to go out and fight, Lord, but, you know, be there with me, be my backup. You know what I mean? 
then then I'm really championing a cause that's bigger than me that I need God I need God's grace to accomplish and that I really literally need to grow as a man to become not just to accomplish but to become bear <clears throat> we live in a time when uh, people are either unwilling or unable to define words like man and woman um, what for you defines being a man, I know. Again, you've already kind of touched on this some, but what? And also, when we were talking before we began recording, you mentioned that uh, uh, you don't like to use the word masculinity because it's been co-opted. You you want you like the word manliness. Um, can you talk about that a little bit about your your definition of what makes a man and the distinction between masculinity and manliness? Well, right off the bat, men are made out of mud. You know, <laughs> women are more highly distilled. They come from the close to the heart of man, right? Uh, women are much more highly distilled than men. We're made out of mud and we know it and we love it. You know, and I was riding my motorcycle with Tony Orband. And we're filming season two of Long Ride Home. We're riding through the sleet and the rain up there somewhere near Cape May. And we stop at a stoplight and it's slick and it's treacherous and it's freezing cold. And Tony looks over at me and he goes, why do we love this? You know, so man have, men have in them this, this, this mud, but I'll tell you, uh, uh, the woman for me, uh, as a tandem surfer, my job as a man, as a tandem man is to protect the woman. Not only that, it's to inspire her trust that she knows if she paddles out with me, no matter the conditions that I'm, my number one job is to protect her. My wife, when she started tandem surfing, she was tandem surfing with a guy that she, he fell, he dropped her, he fell on her, he didn't protect her. And I finally went to him one day and I said, you are not allowed to take her out in tandem anymore. You, you know, you hurt her. And I saw him go out. I was filming Long Ride Home in Cocoa Beach, Florida. I saw him take her out. I got on my tandem board. I, I paddled out next to them a couple hundred yard, hundred yards away. He dropped her and fell on her. And she walked out of the water rubbing her shoulder. And even though it was salty water, I could see she was crying. I signaled her to come over to me. I paddled out. We did three different waves, three different overhead lifts. When we got to the beach, he was gone. So a man protects the woman. A man's number one job is to protect the woman's dignity, to protect her physically, to provide for her. When a man does that, he feels so great. When a man really protects and provides for a woman, there's nothing can make him feel better than that. And to be um, responsible enough and trusted enough to be the man that, uh, of, of the father of her children. Uh, there's nothing, nothing that, that talks about what a man is more than when I first met Cindy, she asked me, why do you have these? Did you have surgery on your back? And I said, no. And then she asked me a couple of weeks later, are you sure you didn't have surgery? And I go, Oh no, no, no. Those are scars. When a, when a, uh, when a, someone cuts across me, when I'm lifting you and, and I have to, you know, I, I hold you up. I take the hit on my shins and then I drop you and I'll jump off the back of the board. And cause I'm attached to the leash, I get drug, drug across the reef. My number one job is to protect you. And men have lost that. Men have lost that. Our job is to lift the woman. When I'm tandem surfing, no one even cares about me. They just see the beauty and the power and the grace displayed in that woman because she can trust me. Yeah, you write in the book that a, that a man is uh, defined at least partially and maybe even largely by how he treats a woman. Uh, unfortunately, we live in a time when I think there's a really growing anger and pushback among young men against the kind of feminism that's driven our culture over the last 50 years. So there are a lot of young men today who completely reject the kind of chivalrous behavior toward women that you're talking about. 
that I think was considered a positive virtue in my generation, but it's completely out of fashion now, unfortunately. What do you feel about that or think about that? Well, you know what? You know why they're, you know why? Here, let's look at it like this. So often the young men say, <clears throat> oh, we are being marginalized. They make fun of us. They use us. They, they treat us like we're provincial buffoons. Doesn't that sound like a weak, disgusting, wimpy man to talk like that, that I'm a victim? Uh, the reason why we are being marginalized is because men back in the day, I would say going back to when the pill came out, men forsook love and responsibility and they just went after sexual gratification. When men stopped being responsible for the woman they went to bed with by marrying her, the whole fabric of society was torn asunder. And so why wouldn't they laugh at you? All you're doing is seeking gratification. And now a man won't even be married to the, won't even, you know, be with a woman, you know, he, they, men seek it, man boys seek it, seek it through pornography. So when a man really lays down his life for a woman and waits until he's married and says, I'm going to, I'm going to love you and take responsibility for you and the child. If we have a child, that's why we're made to look like provincial buffoons. Cause you know what we are. And it's my generation. It's our generation that did that. We became like coquettish little high school girls. Hey, if you really love me, you go to bed with me. And it, women eventually broke that kind of social contract with they had each other had with each other and hell all hell broke loose. So so uh, men, the the one scripture verse I would use for men when I talk and I've talked with a lot of men and the last young men in the last two weeks on college campuses. By the way, the professors there wanting to cancel me just because of the title of the book. Uh, uh, I, I told them, here's the verse for you, young men. The angel said to Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary to you as your wife. Don't be afraid. You be a virtuous man so you can attract a virtuous woman. And then you ask her out on a date and you date her and you ask her to marry you and you get married. It was so cool because after one of the meetings, I'm signing books and this guy, I, I could tell you his name. It's a cool name. It's a cowboy name. He came up to me and, he, and I, I, I go, Gus, oh, now I've told you his name. But I go, dude. Look, look behind you. That girl's kind of shadowing you. I go, he goes, you know, I really like her. And I go, well, she's kind of hanging around, you know, like ask her out on a date. And I go, well, I did ask her if she's going to the, to the swing dance this week. And I go, dude, ask her for a cup of coffee, you know, and he goes, wow, you think? And I go, yeah. And then like he went over and she's just kind of halfway turned towards him, halfway turned away. He asked her out. So, man, don't be afraid to take Mary to you as your wife. Don't be afraid to ask a girl out. You know what? We've all, so many men in my generation, we've paid our dues. You know, we've been through hell because of a bad marriage. I mean, that's the example, you know, we see so often. But be courageous. The most courageous thing a man can do right now is ask a girl out and marry her. So, so uh, yeah, you know, it's the greatest, the greatest joy in life is to, is to, is to love a woman and, and to care for her. Ask you about a distinction that you make in the book. You write that every man needs to define his own personal creed and code. What's the difference between a creed and a code, and how do men go about defining and creating those? Yeah, my boyhood hero was Duke Kahanamoku. He was Olympic gold medalist. He was a, a lifeguard, a champion surfer. But his creed was just one word: aloha, 
which means uh, to give breath. It's another way of saying love. And so a creed is a one sentence, two sentence statement. My personal creed is that the most radical quest a man can pursue in life is to abandon himself to the wild adventure of God's will. I mean, that's just the way God wired me. I'm different than other men. Every man's unique. You need to define your own personal telos, your own true end, the way God made you. Uh, and in that context, define who you are. And then uh, and then um, define how you will live that life out. What are the rules you will live by? And so the creed is just an essence statement. And then the, the rules are, you know, like one of the rules, I never, I don't get to do this in Hawaii very much, but because the parking there is kind of tight in Waikiki and in Oahu, is open up the door for my wife, you know. And my wife gets a new flower just about, maybe not not every day, but but almost every day. On, on the road to our, on, as we walk along the beach, there's a hibiscus bush. Those flowers come out in the morning and they die at night. They're one day flowers. And more than likely she's gonna get a plumeria or a hibiscus for, for me to show her that I love her. That's a rule. So in big rules and little rules, uh, define yourself. So in my book, 12 Rules for Manliness, I have 12 of what I would say are the main rules that a man a man can live by, my own code. Like cowboys lived by a code. It was unwritten, but they lived by a code. Yes, and there's not an official cowboy code, but there is an unofficial one. Can you talk a little bit about what the cowboy code is? Yeah, well, I think one of the main ones is, well, uh, uh, you know, John Wayne said, every man's got to have a creed, a code he can live by. So there you go. Of course, that was Louis L'Amour's writing in the movie Hondo, in the book Hondo, but the rules uh, of the cowboy are very. I write about them in one of my in one in one of the chapters. But my rules are: uh, ride for the brand, be a man of your word, be dangerous, bridle your passions, and let good things run wild. Don't be a drifter. Seek God's uh, purpose for you, and then ride the proving trail. Pursue your course of action. Uh, come hell or high water, get the job done. How cowboy is that? Uh, be lean and mean. Be fit. I call it fitness to witness. Build brotherhood. Um, I was reading that verse the other day, just just yesterday, I think it was, where Paul writes, exhorts, uh, I forget the whole verse, but in it he, say, he says, act like men. He doesn't say act like a man. And for the first time it struck me, it says act like men. Men implying brotherhood. Uh, so we need uh, two or three trusted brothers in our life who will call us to, to, to be good men and be an example for us. And then how a man treats a woman defines him. And then fill your quiver, uh, the adventure, you know, the adventure of fatherhood. I love that chapter. Let me back up a moment and ask you about the building of brotherhood. I think a lot of men feel that and instinctively want to do that, but don't know how to go about it. How does a man build brotherhood? Well, first of all, just the recognition that you really need it. You know, I used to have a place up in Montana. I bought this place up a mile from Canada, a mile from Glacier Park, very isolated. And I remember I walked out onto the land. I was going to stake out a place for my cabin. There wasn't even a road. And as soon as I got towards my land, here was a lone wolf uh, across the meadow. They have those crazy eyes, the yellowish, seem like almost fluorescent eyes. But but uh, six months later, I, I would see this wolf from time to time, and I realized I'm on his land. It's not my land. But I, I bumped into a professor from the, the University of Missoula, and he said, yeah, I'm an I'm a, uh, apex predator tracker. 
And I know that Wolf, he's a, he's an alpha male. He used to be, he used to be the alpha male of that pack, but he got forced out by a younger male. And I go, you know what? He doesn't, he looks mean and angry. I can see why, but he also looks kind of gaunt, a little bit weak. And he goes, yeah, he's going to die young because a wolf isn't meant to be alone and he's going to die young because he's not part of a pack anymore. So men who think they can be the lone wolf and flourish are wrong. We need each other. And the way you do that is, you know what? I remember as a Boy Scout, it took three logs to build a fire. You find two other men and you say, let's have whiskey and a cigar once a week on the back of my my porch or let's have breakfast together early in the morning once a week or let's text, have a group text together. You know what I mean? So so men, men, you know who they are already. And you don't have that guy who's going to drag you down. You, you have good men. Psalm 1 says, do not sit among the seat of scoffers. You know, be with men that are really dedicated to pursuing virtue and then pursue real gritty relationship. You know, people go, oh, you need to have other brothers who will hold you accountable. I don't like that. I don't like that. Or they'll say you need to be vulnerable and open. And I go, I don't like that. But I'll be gritty and I'll be real with someone as long as they challenge and encourage me and they and they and they model for me what a man is. But uh, yeah, men, you got it. You got you know who they are. There's two. There's one or two good men around you and you need to encourage relationship with them and say, let's do this. Let's let's uh, let's uh, let's have coffee together once a week. You know, but you got to have that. You got to have that or you're going to die. You're going to die young. Another one of your rules is ride for the brand. You mentioned that. What does that mean to ride for the brand? And why Why is that an important rule for manliness? Well, now, man, it's so important. But I'll tell you, uh, in Montana, where I had this cabin, uh, when you would ride along the road, there'd be these, it's so cool. These big logs go up on the side, you know, they're on the road and then decide there's an entrance to a ranch. And usually these ranches are a long way in between. And you see these two big logs and then there's a, a vertical logs and you see a horizontal log across the top with the name of the ranch. And then there's the oftentimes the brand uh, branded to that log. And if you rode for that, that ran- as a cowboy, you're careful who you chose to ride for. But once you decided I'm going to ride for this brand, you rode for that brand. There was a loyalty that came comes with taking a man's money, you know, and uh, and so. Uh, you would ride a horse with that brand. And so the question is, do people know who you ride for? For me, as a, I, I strive to ride for, for, the, for, for the Lord. And, and people know that. Um, do you ride for, you know, but those, there are many that maybe don't have that sense of religious calling in their life. But do they know that you are seeking to be a man of virtue? Or do you hide from it? Are you a nice guy? Are you passive? You don't want to rock the boat, you know. But no, we need to. People need to know this man uh, knows what he stands for, and uh, he doesn't waver. He, he, he's he's certain in who he rides for, and 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 you're known for it. And I know, like it, it seems hard sometimes, uh, but you know, because people will will tend to come against you. But I guarantee you, those same people, when they have need, they'll come to you for help because they know they can count on you because you ride for the brand. You mentioned this also. You write that a man must be dangerous on three levels. Uh, first, why should a man be dangerous, and what are those three levels? Well, to be a protector implies you've got to be well, you got to know how to fight, and I think that's the, one of the deepest parts of a man. You know, uh, well, there's three levels. Um, I would say first, there's the spiritual level. 
Um, are you the kind of man when you get up in the morning, the devil says, oh, no, you're up, you know. Um, Jesus, for example, was a dangerous man when he taught his disciples how to pray. Pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. To say thy kingdom come, got him crucified, dude. He was, he was saying, I'm an invader. The kingdom of love, the kingdom of God. Uh, invading the kingdom of darkness. He was a dangerous man and Satan knew it. You know, I'll tell you, I, I, I'll tell you, as a ninja black belt, uh, I learned how to stage a fight. Like, you know, you think, oh, this guy's got great reflexes, but often, for example, knife fighting is one of my favorite fights, way to fight, um, especially if the guy has a wooden knife, <laughs> not a real one. But I mean, the, the beauty of a knife fight is that you know where the attack's going to come from. You know, it's not a headbutt. It's not a punch. It's not a kick. It's coming from that knife. So you already got an advantage. And then you can stage it by giving the person a target, like maybe making your neck vulnerable or opening up so he'll go for your chest, your stomach. Um, Jesus did that. He did that. He staged a fight with Satan. Uh, he, he went, to, he, he staged the fight by going to Golgotha. And he, uh, we have a saying, I'm a Catholic in mass, an ancient saying, dying, you destroyed death, rising, you restored life. When I, in a knife fight, I was doing this with a friend of mine, Gerard. I go, Gerard, you're going to attack me with this knife. I'm doing a big men's conference. And what's going to happen is you're going to end up on the ground and I'm going to slit your throat with this knife. But it's better for you if you let me do it so I don't break your wrist. So he attacked me and with a wrist throw. As I'm throwing him, the knife comes, the blade comes across his throat, you know, the wooden blade. It ends up in my hand, and then I submit him. And uh, that's what Jesus did at Golgotha. He he took Satan's weapon of death and killed him with it. Dying you destroy death. Right? The resurrection is what uh, really uh, brought brought the great victory. So he was spiritually dangerous, and men need to know how to pray, how to be able to smell a rat, know that. You can get all involved in politics, which is very critical. But if you don't know there isn't a, a bigger cons conspiracy the, that we're fighting against the principalities and powers of the air, the demonic powers, then you're like already like a child walking through a Beirut, you know. But And then a man needs to be able to stand for what he believes in. I know many men that, uh, you know, for example, they're, they're, they're being members of the man cave. Uh, I've been invited to be part of the pride committee this year. And I told them I couldn't do that for moral issues. And, and uh, they didn't get fired, but they're not going to get promoted. They stood for what they believed in. And then there's actually men need to be able to, and willing to physically fight. They should know how that is best for them based on their mindset and the way uh, their physical abilities. But men need to be able and willing to physically protect those that God's calling them to, to serve. So, so yeah, for me, uh, Jab, punch, hook, uppercut, uh, side kick, front kick would be good. And a man should be able to be in good enough shape that he can last two minutes. Because anyone who can last two minutes is probably going to win the fight. Uh, you hear this phrase, war on masculinity, pretty often these days, war on men. And our culture does seem to be waging a war on men's nature, calling it toxic and poisonous. But you go a little deeper and say that it's actually uh, Satan that is waging a war on men. Why does Satan hate men and especially fathers and fatherhood? Well, do you know, Satan is a father. Jesus even said he's the father of lies. Satan hates men because it isn't that 
you know, we think, I remember when I was young, I thought, oh, we call God the father, father, because he's kind of like a father, you know, he's kind of like a man, you know, in the family and all that. Actually, God is father because he eternally begot his son. And, you know, that's what love does. It provides, it protects, but it also procreates. So to be called a father is a big deal. It means you're really an icon for God the Father. And so Satan just hates men. He just hates men. And, you know, he's the biggest bully on the block, but he's only—he's just a bully. He's just a punk. And so to be a man of God, it's like, you know, that story of the, of the younger brother who's being bullied and, and the bully's going to pick on him and he starts, the younger boy starts to fight and the bully runs away and then he turns around and realizes his big brother's standing behind him. You know what I mean? That's, that's what it's like uh, for us as we walk with the Lord. Jesus is backing us up. And, uh, and people will say, like, when you go out on Long Ride Home and you're filming and we're doing some gnarly things, gnarly things happen when we're filming our motorcycle show. They go, do you ever come under spiritual attack? And I go, no, we're on the attack. We may experience resistance, but we're on the attack. There's this Warren Carroll wrote these great series of books, seven volumes set on Christendom. And in there, he talks about this general in Spain uh, as the Muslims were invading from the south. They got cornered up in the Basque region. And this general, I don't remember his name, but he, that's, it is said that he only had wounds on the front. He never turned his back and ran. So so that that's the that that's why Satan hates men, because we we um, were procreators. You know, all Satan can do. There's no really such thing. All all evil is, is the negation of something good or the twisting of something good. And they know that a, a man and a woman together, when they create life, he hates that. So he does all that he can to to disrupt it. I'm glad you brought up the topic of spiritual warfare. It's a question that I ask many of my guests is if they think that we are ultimately kind of engaged in in spiritual warfare and what they think about that. And I think this is the first time I've heard any of my guests say that we're actually the ones who are on the offensive, uh, that we're the ones on the attack. So I really like your perspective on that. Yeah, you know, the gates of Jesus said, I will build my church. We don't know what he built. The word is technon. We don't know. If, he probably worked it with rock, right? Because, you know, in Israel, there's no wood. There's only one wooden house, the prime ministers. Jesus, and so he was a builder. But the only thing we know he built was a church. And he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates don't attack people. We're attacking. We're on the attack. It's an invasion. You know, so it's an invasion of love, but it's an invasion. This may be a kind of an unfair question, but of your 12 rules for manliness, are there a couple that you feel are basically your favorites, the ones that are most meaningful for you, or maybe that you think are most important for men today to strive for? I, I think what at the heart of it is I say in one of the rules, how a man treats a woman defines him. You know, because women are... are it, the Bible says they're the weaker, weaker, weaker vessel. They're very strong in many, many ways. But physically, you know, uh, a man can, is normally stronger than a woman. And we just tend to have this brute force sort of uh, the brunt of the, I don't know, the bow of the ship that plows through the water. Men just kind of are the ones that kind of take the, the hits. You know, we're just, whether it's in every way, a man kind of is out in front kind of protecting the women. And so... 
how a man treats a woman defines him. I can look at a man and I can look at his wife and I can find out who he is. Um, does he lift her up? Does he protect her? Does he? And now here's the thing. Uh, you know, John Paul II said these words, because I think the real heart of this issue, the gritty part of this issue is pornography and, 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 and the objectifying of women. And John Paul II said the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of the woman, it shows too little. And we see the great artistry in the, in the past of, 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 of humans' bodies. The human body is beautiful. But when you look at pornography, you're not looking at the beauty and the image of God in that woman. You're just looking at, you're just lusting and objectifying her instead of making her a subject of love. And so what happened, so I would say, even now, if a man hasn't met the woman he's going to marry, he should still cherish her, pray for her, and 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 give her dignity by how he's respecting a woman he may be dating now. How he doesn't yield to the shameful, uh, you know, oh, there's nothing that makes a man weaker than viewing pornography and and uh, falling to that. And men need to win that battle, and it can be. Uh, by where we turn our focus. When I'm riding my motorcycle down the road and there's a big truck passing me, I know not to look at that truck because my, my motorcycle will turn, tend to turn and crash in it. So instead of looking at pornography, you need to look at, as Paul said, whatever is good, whatever is excellent, whatever is pure, think on these things. We need to think of our mind as the, the battleground and train our mind to pursue the true good, read good books. There's nothing like reading like the book of Augustine or Aquinas or Aristotle or a great thinker that seems to just let the synapses in your mind snip, snip, snap, snap, and kind of come together into a clear, into a clarity. When I lift a woman, her job when I lift her is to focus on my shoulder or the horizon or the sky. And the minute she changes her focus for that particular lift, I can tell her, I can feel her eyes move and I'll tell her, look up or look at my shoulder because she'll fall out of balance. The word as a, in the Hebrew Bible and in the Greek Bible, the word for sin is an archer's term, meaning to miss the mark. So where we bring our focus is where we're going to go. So men have to win that battle. When I was young, I mean, dude, I didn't ever saw a playboy till I was like, like end of my senior year in high school, you know. Now, young men are being attacked. It's a full-out attack, and the young men need to win that battle. We're counting on these young men to fight that, to resist it, to reject it for, for the wormy uh, 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 attack of Satan that it is. Uh, let me ask you about books. You mentioned reading. You are a very active, physical guy, um, but you also seem very well-read. Why is it important for men to read books. Uh, I mean, I know because I homeschool my own kids and I also homeschool teenage boys in our homeschooling community. And one of the things I tell them that I want to try to make of them is warrior scholars um, and to teach them the importance of reading. But why is, what's your take on reading and books and why it's important to, to develop yourself that way as a man? Yeah, but first of all, I'm so proud of you and those who are homeschooling their children. It's so incredible that people make that commitment and that sacrifice. Well, I'll make it simple. Leaders are readers. If you want to lead, what a great gift for me. And by the way, the best way to read a book that I know is to have a cigar and a shot of whiskey while you're reading it, you know. 
I know for me, I love to sit with my iPad outside or down at the beach and a cigar keeps the riffraff away. You know, it's a solitude maker. But, you know, a cigar kind of guide, you know, kind of carries you through an hour long session of reading. It just pulls you through and a shot of whiskey now. And then I know one of my favorite writers, G.K. Chesterton, by the way, read G.K. if you want your mind to become healthy. Uh, he said the pint, the what do you say, the pint, the Bible and the cross go well together. And so a, a man's mind needs to be trained. And, the, and Paul even said, be renewed by, be transformed. That the real word in the Greek is metamorphosed, like a worm becoming a butterfly, you know, this dramatic change. Be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, not your brain, right? The mind is part of your soul. It uses the organism of the brain, but the soul of your very soul. Uh, train your mind by by reading good C.S. Lewis, uh, the uh, Tolkien, his good friend Tolkien. Um, you know who they are. Uh, uh, some gentleman named Horowitz. People like that. You know, read, read, read um, great writers of the of the of, of the current and of the past, and it and it it, it, it makes your mind fit together. And you, th- you know, what's a really good book, regardless of what people's disposition is, is the Catholic Catechism is so full of philosophy and theology and just right thinking that it's kind of like precept upon precept, but find books. Even if you don't like to read leaders are readers, it's hard to lift weights too, but you grow through resistance training. So you grow strong through reading. Very well said. Bear, as I've said before, you've got a lot of things going on. What, what is the best way for people to follow you and keep up with what you're doing? Thank you for asking that. I'm going to remind people it's 12 Rules for Manliness. Where have all the cowboys gone? The best place is to go to deepadventure.com. And they can if they sign up for my weekly newsletter, we send them my weekly radio show, the YouTube version of it. And we may send them a link to one of our new TV shows, you know, the motorcycle show or a thought from my from my um, uh, a short thought. But um, also, if you subscribe, it's really easy to unsubscribe. <laughs> so... And then also go to the Bear Wozniak YouTube channel. We've got so many great things there, a lot of new things uh, that we're doing. So those two places, uh, the deepadventure.com website or the Bear Wozniak Deep Adventure YouTube channel. Listeners, the book we've been talking about today, again, is 12 Rules for Manliness, Where Have All the Cowboys Gone? I really urge you to get it and check it out and also check out everything else that Bear is up to. Bear Wozniak, thanks for coming on the Right Take Podcast. Mark, thanks for thanks for manning up and being... I think on being on the front lines and even a little bit behind enemy lines and, and doing this stuff. Well, it's my pleasure. All right. Mahalo, my friend. Uh, listeners, thank you again for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. Don't forget to subscribe to The Right Take so you can keep up with all the important conversations we're having here. And if you like what you hear, please leave that positive review. Be seeing you. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.